Aloha, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. You can go to live in France, but you cannot become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Turkey or Japan, but you cannot become a German, a Turk, or Japanese. But anyone from any corner of the earth can come to live in America and become an American. Welcome back to A Nation of Immigrants, a new talk show program featuring the life of immigrants, knowledge, diversity, and inclusion. Brought to you by Kingsfield Law Office and Think Tank Hawaii. We invite renowned immigrants to discuss their life stories, immigration adventures, and contributions to cultural diversity. Today's guest is our good friend, Robert Weber. Robert Bob Weber, a second-generation Korean-American, has been practicing U.S. immigration law for 20-plus years. He has extensive experience advising on visas and green card strategies for some of the largest and most well-known organizations in the world. He recognizes that in the current political and policy environment, clients want immigration attorneys with both subject matter expertise and also process and project management excellence. Prior to starting Weber Law Firm 2.0, Bob was an equity partner at the large general practice AM Law 100 Law Firm, where he was rated by Chambers USA as band one in the area of immigration law. Bob has previously been recognized as super lawyer an attorney of the year by Minnesota Lawyer, a legal industry publication. Welcome back, Bob. Thank you, Chang. Thanks for this opportunity. And I'm uh, wearing my uh, Hawaiian shirt in honor of uh, being on Hawaiian TV and also um, against the uh, very cold weather we're having here <laughs> in uh, Minnesota in the middle of April after Easter. Uh, when uh, we should be able to, you know, be in shorts and, uh, uh, you know, flowers should be growing. But uh, <laughs> I think it was uh, snow this weekend, at least in my house. Yeah, it's, it's in Paul as well. So that's that's <laughs> our life, I guess. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we've been knowing each other for for uh, several years, and uh, you you were the chair of immigration council at Minnesota Bar, a State Bar Association. And I had the privilege working with you on the council. And uh, you, you, you are very, you are one of the most active, you know, uh, bar association leaders in the state of Minnesota. And you've been very well recognized by our peers. But we never had to really have a, a opportunity to sit down, talk about yourself. Now I want to, I, I know you are a second generation Korean American, and I understand uh, you have uh, been practicing uh, your immigration law for uh, more than 20 years, and your mom is, is Korean American. But tell us about your family and how your family settled in the state of Minnesota, and uh, what was it be, what's the story behind this second generation Korean American you know, label? Yeah, thanks, Chang. No, I appreciate it. Well, my uh, grandfather on my father's side uh, was uh, born in Nebraska, and he um, uh, 
after college, he, he was the first person in his family to go to college, and he got a job at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they transferred him to Minneapolis uh, just before my dad was born. And so my dad grew up in Richfield, which, as you know, is a south uh, suburb of Minneapolis. Actually, um, I believe that for part of the time that my grandfather worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, his office was in uh, a federal building in downtown Minneapolis, which for some point was also the U.S. CIS office, the Immigration Service office. Now, the Immigration Service office has more recently moved to a second building downtown, but um, I guess my, uh, you know, my heritage goes back to uh, to that building, but uh, my my dad uh, grew up in uh, the Twin Cities, you know, in Ridgefield, and then uh, he actually uh, went to college at Iowa State, not a very good student, and uh, he dropped out of college and he joined the military. He was supposed to go uh, or potentially could have gone to Vietnam because that was around the time that people were going to Vietnam, but he actually was assigned to Korea uh, between Seoul and the you know, what became the DMZ. And uh, my mom was a waitress in the mess hall where he was stationed and somehow they got connected. And, uh, and then I was the bona fides of their uh, relationship uh, in terms of uh, eventually immigrating to the United States. And so yeah, that's um, how we ended up in Minnesota. And then I grew up uh, moving around a little bit, but ended up going to school at William Mitchell and then staying uh, in Minnesota for my entire career practicing law. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Bob. It's, uh, you went to Mitchell and tell us a little bit about uh, Mitchell. And Mitchell is now a Mitchell Hamlin School of Law. You, 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 you were uh, uh, adjunct faculty at Mitchell, I, I understand? No, uh, no, I never, I never taught there actually. But I went to uh, Mitchell. I did the night program there. It was a little unusual for me because I was right out of college, and most of the students in the uh, night program are uh, um, older. You know, uh, maybe what they call non-traditional students. But I, uh, I really wanted to get different kinds of work experience. I wasn't sure. I certainly didn't uh, think I was going to be an immigration lawyer. To be honest, I didn't even really know what immigration lawyers did. But in my uh, after my first year of law school, I got a job at an immigration boutique, Ingber and Aronson. I worked uh, pretty much exclusively with Jerry Ingber, who was one of the very first um, immigration attorneys in uh, Minnesota, and really had an excellent uh, practice and reputation. And was just uh, a good to uh, be introduced to the practice of immigration law. Uh, he's since uh, retired and actually has a very interesting retirement life. I last saw him at the airport. He volunteers uh, at the airport. Uh, I think he just likes uh, being around international people. And uh, so being at the airport, I mean, this was pre-COVID. I haven't seen him since COVID. Um, but yeah, so I, I was at Mitchell at night. I went, I worked at Ingber and Aronson. Uh, from there, I went to a firm, which is also 
now that I look back, a number of firms that I worked at went out of business. I don't, I, hopefully it wasn't because of me. <laughs> uh, but uh, Doherty, Rumble, and Butler was an old uh, law firm, uh, longstanding law firm. And at that time, I worked with Scott Wright and Peter Yost, actually uh, went on to go to Fagri and Benson, uh, which is a very big uh, firm here in Minnesota. And then after that, I went to... Um, Oppenheimer for a year, which is a big firm. Now it's Fox Rothschild. And then I worked at Myers Thompson. So I had several jobs um, in law school and out of law school at different immigration firms. I'm really grateful, though, to have had those experiences because I worked with some really top uh, lawyers in the field and they had very different approaches. Uh, and you're able to, I think one of the advantages when you do that is you're able to see how different people practice law and, um, you know, create your own route, but you can learn from that. Uh, and so I'm grateful to have had that experience. And I would encourage, you know, if there are people listening who are thinking about going to law school or in law school, it can be a great experience to uh, work, you know, work uh, for different people. And I would also say that early in your career, I mean, maybe you don't want to be changing jobs as much as I did, but uh, it is okay to work a few different places and get some different experience. Um, but yeah, and then and then in 2004, I went on my own. I had my own practice from 2004 to 2019. Then I merged with a big firm. Uh, big firm life wasn't for me. And so in September, uh, just uh, six months ago, I went back on my own uh, as Weber Law Firm 2.0. I realized there aren't a lot of law firms named 2.0, but it was my second iteration of having my own practice. And I named it that as a way of trying to remind myself uh, to, uh, you know, to learn to be better than the 1.0 version of myself. I feel like that's, uh, that's one of the goals of the new law firm so thank you very much that's terrific it's a it's a you even you have you know changed places a couple of times but the one consistent theme is immigration law that's uh that's you know immigration law we don't teach immigration law law at law school you know not all the law school teach immigration law and I got the interest into immigration law is quite natural because I went through, I've been through the whole process from an international student F1 to OPT, H1B, you know, EB1 and green card and naturalization, the entire process. So I, I found the, pro, the entire process, just like our uh, uh, subject title of this, your episode is immigration law makes me laugh and cry. I think it's quite be honest, uh, immigration law makes me laugh and cry. <laughs> but tell us why you think immigration law make you laugh and cry. Well, I think that uh, you have to keep your sense of humor in practicing, probably practicing all areas of law, but in immigration law, uh, because there are so many policy changes and administrations. Obviously, we've seen some uh, extreme uh, examples here. But, you know, I started practicing uh, immigration law before 9-11. Uh, people forget that uh, September 11, 2001, greatly changed uh, the practice of immigration law. That was uh, after 2001 was the creation of the Department of Homeland Security. 
and uh, a lot of things uh, happened during that time. And uh, you know, I focus on employment-based immigration, so I work with uh, tend to be skilled immigrants, and we see how the economy and recessions and economic forces really uh, change the practice of law. Uh, and how over time um, policies become more difficult. I mean, things that used to file that were four or five pages have become hundreds of pages uh, as a result of the complexity. And so, um, you know, I think you have to laugh sometimes at these things that happen and try to keep uh, a sense of humor or, or you'd always be crying because of how frustrating it is. Um, but I do, I do, I mean, obviously I've been an immigration lawyer for a long time and I don't plan to change anything, but I, I do like the practice because I sometimes think about the generational opportunity you have, you know, um, you can work with a client and think about where their parents or what their lives of their parents or grandparents were. And then you look forward to what the lives of their children or grandchildren. It's really an interesting uh, way in which you can play a part in a family trajectory. And uh, also, you know, as a proud American, I think it's great that we are able to bring these talented people to the United States from all over the world to contribute to the United States. And as you said in the beginning, the United States uh, is a very unique country in that people can come from all over the world and within several years uh, be an American and uh, and uh, contribute and their children very much identify as American, but uh, in other countries that wouldn't uh, wouldn't always be the case. I mean, there's only maybe a few other countries that have that phenomena. And even though, uh, you know, People have developed pretty strong attitudes about immigration, and some people are sort of strongly opposed to immigration. I think that consistently you see polls that people support immigration. They they might have issues with certain certain things, and I do think um, that's one of the things that hopefully I I like to add to the discussion of immigration is trying to be honest about what the options and situations are. And as best as possible to try to be respectful of different viewpoints, um, I think that to, uh, immigration maybe is the quintessential issue right now in, in the U.S. where people have such strong positions that they can't even engage with other people. They just uh, either one side, you know, uh, I mean, there's just such strong views that it's hard for us to make progress as a society because, uh, you know, nobody wants to be called a racist or, you know, maybe maybe being a globalist is a compliment in some, some uh, times. But I just I think that we have to try to um, engage on these issues and not necessarily agree with the other side, but try to understand their perspective. And I think that that's an important part of the kind of democratic experience. Very well said. Thank you very much for the answer. Uh, you and I are aware of that UICIS is such a pivotal uh, agency and when we practice in immigration law. And they changed their mission statement in the past few years several times. Uh, trauma administration and trauma administration, they changed the 
the mission statement, basically deleting a nation of immigrants from the mission statement. And recently they changed it to a new version. The new version I will quote, USCIS upholds America's promise as a nation of welcome and possibility with fairness, integrity, and respect for all we serve. Your comments? Well, I'm glad that they made that change. Um, you know, I think that I tr try to, as best as possible, understand the perspective of the Trump people on immigration. I think one way of understanding it is that they view immigrants in a non-zero-sum way. So every immigrant that comes to the United States is somehow taking a job or a benefit from a native, from a native-born American. I think those of us uh, who are maybe uh, more on the pro-immigration side would say, no, immigrants, uh, I mean, the economy in the country is not zero-sum, and immigrants add, they're a multiplier, but that doesn't mean that everyone gets to come and it's just a free-for-all. We have to have some kind of a system. Um, and so I think that the change made by the new administration, the Biden administration, is a positive one. I will say I've been a pretty strong critic of the immigration service for a long time, even predating Trump. But very recently, uh, the, Biden, the new uh, director of USCIS have really seemed to be making some positive changes. You know, we had the Trump administration who in some ways they were delivering what they promised, which was dysfunctional uh, immigration. They were delivering to their voters what was, uh, you know, what they campaigned on. Then the Biden administration came in and promised to be something different. But I think COVID had created such a challenge for all the government agencies, and it took 12 months to sort of get their footing. And now we're in the second year of the Biden administration, and we are seeing some improvements. Now, of course, there's not going to be any immigration reform through Congress uh, this you know, term. Uh, I mean, at least this first two years, probably not the second two years, to be honest. But, um, but the Biden administration can do a lot of things uh, through executive action, and I think they're trying to do so. I think USCIS it, you know, they're implementing more types of premium processing, they're cleaning up backlogs, they're trying to allow for electronic filings, paying by credit cards. These are sort of common sense adjustments to improve things. The US Department of State, I mean, notwithstanding some of the challenges in China, but in other parts of the world with uh, waivers of visa interviews, there have been some pretty impressive things done to accommodate the Ukrainians uh, right now. I see you've got your flag there. Um, I think actually the one place that now I'm focusing my uh, critique is on the Department of Labor. We have a national labor shortage, and I think the U.S. Department of Labor could contribute you know, on the margins by making uh, the processes that involve the Department of Labor faster and more efficient to accommodate employers and immigrants who basically want to work in this labor market. And we clearly have a shortage of workers. But I will, I do think that mission statement, I, I mean, to the credit of the Biden administration, I think that they are trying to deliver on that change statement. Hopefully that'll be sustained here for the rest of the term. And, you know, if there's a second term. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I totally agree with 
with what you said, and also a shout out to the State Department. And the, uh, recently, I, I read some, you know, uh, policy, temporary policy put in place by the State Department that people departing Shanghai, and if you're a U.S. citizen and a green card holder, and immigrant, new immigrants, you don't need a COVID uh, 48 hours PCR test result, but you can just uh, evacuate immediately. And also CDC suspend even for the pass rule from you can bring dogs and the cats from uh, from China and the temporary waiver for the CDC you know uh, import permit requirement. I just a big shout out to both statement State Department and the CDC. And in terms of immigration law practice, we 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 talk about of the 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 challenges of practicing immigration law. And in the, in the foreseeable future, immigration law will continue to evolve in uh, under whatever administration, and hopefully getting improved, continue to be improved. But from what I see in the past decades, you know, immigration law is a, such a complicated uh, area, and require a massive capability of empathize with your client. And that is a very unique quality I see from you and from other uh, you know, top immigration lawyers. And we all hear this you know, AI going to replace a law practice. And but in my view that immigration law is probably one of the hardest practice area to be replaced by AI. Because the AI they have uh, IQ, but they do not have EQ. They do not have emotional intelligence. And I, I feel like you are a people who possess this uh, tremendous emotional intelligence can empathize with your clients in order to practice the immigration law. So what do you see, what do you see the immigration law practice in the next 10 years, 15 years or 20 years? Well, I don't, I don't uh, pretend to know what the future of the practice is, but I do think that what you talk about is a part of the conundrum. I mean, uh, clearly uh, there are large employers, Amazon and Microsoft, who have hundreds of workers on temporary work visas, and they want to basically process these things efficiently and everything I think Amazon tries to do, they try to do efficiently. And so uh, so you have that pressure because they're not in the business of processing visas. So they don't, I mean, I'm sure they already spend millions of dollars, but they're hoping not to spend tens of millions of dollars. And on any individual immigration case, people, you know, who can afford an attorney, uh, you know, they, they want advice and um, strategy but how do you provide that and still be uh, cost competitive? And uh, uh, it's definitely a challenge. I think that the fundamental thing is that there's just a disconnect between supply and demand. You know, there is a lot of demand to come to the United States and a limited number of supply in the ways in which people can come legally. And that's uh, the core of immigration law is trying to figure out how, how to position your client uh, in this, uh, you know, in this very uh, strict environment. And I, I don't know that that's going to 
I mean, there will be changes in the rules, but this fundamental construction of supply and demand uh, hopefully is not going to change. Sometimes, depending on the administration, you do wonder whether people are going to still keep wanting to come to the United States. There was a period of time that I was joking that, uh, you know, I'm 49, so hopefully people will still want to come for about 20 more years. That's all I need, you know. Um, but, um, uh, but I mean, that is a question. But, you know, that's the thing about the United States is that the pendulum uh, shifts. And, of course, right now we see what's going on in different parts of the world, in Ukraine in particular. And um, for all the problems that the United States has, it's still a great place to live and to raise a family and to uh, you know, pursue professional excellence. And um, I think that people know this uh, all over the world. And so they will still keep trying to come here. But I do think figuring out as attorneys how we can utilize technology. But I too, like you, am skeptical that AI or the bots will replace us Although I do think that as attorneys, we should be open to the use of technology uh, to make our representation more efficient or more precise. Um, but, you know, I might be regretting this. Maybe there'll be a bot who's laughing at this uh, show in a few years, but hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully not. Hopefully our, uh, the EQ aspects of our role and also the fact that so many things fall into gray areas. And so discretion and judgment and experience uh, matter. Also the complexity and changing dynamic of immigration law, like, get, like having a sense of whose profile is good enough for EB1 or whether somebody can get a visitor's visa or the right way to position uh, things for a student visa to an H1B. These are hard things, I think, to teach a, a, an AI. Precisely. I totally agree. And uh, talk about the, how many years people still want to come to the United States. I will give it another 200 to 300 years. <laughs> okay, I like good. The, I like the quotation. It's a simple way to take measure of a country is to look at how many people want in and how many people want out. And uh, so in the, I have total confidence in the next 200, 300 years, people still want to come to the United States. But we, we normally end our program with a, a question to our distinguished guest. You know, uh, if you were give some advice to yourself in the 20s, what would you say? And finally, is there any particular recommendation you want to recommend to our audience? Well, I've been thinking about this, and actually, my answer is the same. Uh, you know, they tied together. Um, I uh, I had been recommended this book a while ago, and didn't really uh, pursue it until recently. It's called Atomic Habits, and to be honest, I actually think that this book is something that would be would have been great for me to read in my twenties. Uh, uh, you know, the concept makes total sense, which is that you just do small things incrementally in your life, uh, you build up habits, and over time, uh, you have a, a return on investment. So it's a little bit like putting into your one every month and then benefiting from the compound uh, interest uh, or the you know, investment 
uh, savings over time. And uh, I think there's a lot to that in professional life and personal life. One of the things that really struck me, and I think, again, if I maybe knew this in my 20s, I might have thought a little differently. Um, there's somewhere in the book where they're talking about people who are successful and people who fail. Uh, many of them had the same goals. You know, they, they had the same goals, but uh, some succeeded and some failed. So it wasn't the goal. You know, sometimes people will say, well, you have to set goals for yourself. And it's like, okay. And I've actually known that for most of my life, you have to set goals for yourself. But actually, uh, the hard part is not so much setting a goal for you. It's for achieving the goal. And many times uh, the goal is very hard to achieve without just incremental daily effort towards the goal. And um, so I think that um, one of the things and, and I do think it kind of counter to the culture right now, uh, you know, I have three kids and you know, uh, two of them think they're going to be YouTube stars or something uh, and as their occupation. And, um, you know, there are some famous people. And of course, it's in the news, you know, these tech people who are in their 20s and make a billion dollars. Uh, but a lot of things in life just take a long time to develop expertise or uh, ability. Law is one of those areas where, you know, over time you have more and more experience with clients and with situations. And hopefully that experience uh, translates into wisdom for the next kind of generation of clients. And so I feel like, um, you know, in my 20s, if I would have had a, a better sense about some of those things, uh, and, and, I, and I really wasn't as bad as maybe some people, but just this idea of investing over time and not uh, not expecting uh, uh, home runs in in uh, in any year but but rather just over time uh, developing and knowing that there are setbacks both uh, in professional life and personal life but just uh, you know continuing to move forward I know that recently you made me familiar with the uh, the Chinese proverb of uh, of them taking uh, taking the horse. Yeah, old uh, man lo loses his horse. Yeah, yeah. Why don't I mean? To me, that's such a great. Uh, that's a great. Why uh, can you can you tell me again how it goes? I know. Um, yeah, we think we are running out of time. Oh, all right. I'm sorry. About, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we sorry. talk about the old man loses his horse. That is a Chinese proverb. Means that uh, a blessing in disguise. Sometimes misfortune might be a blessing in disguise. That's right. Yeah. And so yeah. Don't be, I wish I knew that proverb <laughs> in my twenties. That's what. <laughs> that's, that's good. Terrific advice and a terrific recommendation. Thank you very much, Bob. You know, since we 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 haven't really have time to to talk about Korea, but uh, my recommendation going to be. Uh, about Korea, Korean culture. I'm uh, 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 addicted to Korean culture, both <laughs> Korean food, Korean music, Korean movie, Korean pop, K-pop. I, I really want to recommend two movies about Pansoli, the, the Korean folk song, a storytelling folk song. The first one is CBNG, uh, CBNG, 1993 film about Pansoli. And there's a 2015 film, uh, The Sound of a Flower. It's a fantastic historical movies. I, I watch all, every single historian Korean drama on Netflix and the Wiki Rakuten. You know, <laughs> believe me, I, I know of them. And those two are my all-time favorite because they are about Korean folk music, Pansoli. So 
we are uh, it just, just you know always fun to talk with you Bob and I wish you can we can invite you back and we can talk more more about uh, the Korean culture and uh, you know your cultural rules in in Korea but uh, you know thank you again for taking time to be on the show and today our guest is our good friend Bob Weber uh, immigration attorney principal of Weber law firm 2.0 and uh, today's story is immigration law makes me laugh and cry. Thank you so much, Bob. Aloha. Thanks. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.